0: Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 35 through 43 in our uh, in our series Jesus is King, a series through the Gospel of Mark. As you're opening, just want to encourage you if you don't already know, bring your Bibles with you, whether that's a physical copy or the one on your phone. The reason is, uh, the Bible teaches that the power for change comes through the word of God. Now, I'm I'm going to explain the word of God, but Jesus says when he prays to the Father in John chapter 17, he prays, sanctify my people in your truth. Your word is truth, right? This is the God-inspired word of God. This is what we gather around on Sunday mornings. This is what we respond to in song, Um, and so it's just good to have our eyes on it, just to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us individually and corporately. And so with your Bibles open, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 35 all the way through 43, the last story in a series of healing stories about Jesus, and this is what the gospel writer Mark says. Actually, I'm going to start a little bit before that. Um, You might remember the story starts back in verse 21. So go back up to verse 21 with me. And then we'll skip ahead after this. It says, when Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side of the Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and kept begging him, my little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressed against him. Now, for the next few verses, stop right there. There's a detour where Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood, and then we want to pick it up again in verse 35, and this is our text for the day. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, "'Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore?' But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He didn't let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They started laughing at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up and walk. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this story, I want to start all the way back at what probably that whole house seemed to feel at the moment that Jesus walked in a little too late on the scene of this group's felt need. It says in verse 35, when he was still speaking, he was, over, he, was, he was over here attending to somebody else's need. It was the woman with the issue of blood, and it detoured him. It caused a delay in his journey to the 12-year-old girl's house, and so now they're giving a report. While he was still speaking, they came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter's dead. Why bother Jesus anymore? Why bother the teacher anymore? Your breakthrough didn't come. You missed it. In other words, it's too late now. The first prayer that we were praying, that that was that was palpable. Like we had the faith for that. Jesus could heal my sick daughter, but now it's too late. She's dead. Have you ever ever felt that way? Or sometimes you just want to give up. Have you ever felt that way in your heart or in your mind? Like maybe you would never say this like in a church setting, but deep down inside there's those moments where you're like, God, you're too late. I needed you yesterday. I needed that job promotion last week. I needed that, that open house a month ago. I needed my mom to be healed last year. I needed X, Y, and Z, you're too late. I needed that breakthrough and I thought you were gonna give it to me and now I don't have it, now I don't even know what to ask you anymore. Just go home, why bother the teacher anymore? I love that on the heels of this, which I have felt at times, maybe you felt as well, in verse 36, Jesus steps into the scene of what is often our desire to give up. It says in verse 36, when Jesus overheard what he said, what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He didn't let anyone accompany him except the the three boys, Peter, James, and John. And he came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. But I kind of want to land on that first sentence in the middle of all of this. And not only what was happening in that particular house 2,000 years ago, but the things that we say to ourselves now, when we don't get the breakthrough that we were expecting, when life doesn't turn out the way that we thought, when we prayed to God for our three points and those three points didn't happen, the first thing that might well up in our hearts is like, God, you're too late, man. I'm going to go home. Why, Why bother the Lord anymore? Why pray? Why come to church. Why attend home group? Why even try? And Jesus response to us is the same as it was to Jairus. Don't be afraid, only believe. You know what? You know what trips me out about this sentence is if you were to ask me what is the opposite of belief I would probably say doubt. Doubt means believing or excuse me, believing means believing and doubt means unbelieving. That's probably the first thing that I would say. And maybe in other situations that would be true, but right here, Jesus seems to show us that the corollary, the negative corollary to belief is not necessarily doubt, but it's fear. Do not be afraid, just believe. Perhaps because fear is what makes you stop doing what you're doing. Like this group in the house. They were after Jesus. He was on the way to their house. And when the girl died, it was apparently fear that caused them to stop. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Don't pray. Don't reach out. It's too late. Fear is often what makes me stop trusting. Stop living as fully as I should. At my worst, fear turns me into a victim. When the breakthrough doesn't happen, it's everybody else's fault, including God's. And I love that Jesus' gentle invitation here does not knock it off, you doubt-filled unbeliever. It's, hey, I wanna invite you to a different path. Instead of being racked with fear, I want you to believe. Now what does believe mean? In our modern context, there might be a handful of things we attach to this word belief. I wanna give you two. The first is gullibility, right? For Christians, maybe, we might think of belief as simply a blind faith. My mom told me when I was a child, so that must be what it is. An authority figure told me, so that must be what it is. The church pastor preached on it, so that must be what it is. gullibility might be what we think of when we talk about belief. That's not what Jesus is speaking about. Another form of belief we might have in our mind is is mere agreement. Uh, The type of agreement you would attach to a mathematical formula, two plus two equals four. (laughs) Well, yeah, you believe that. Or the type of agreement or belief you might have if you read a news report. For example, if there's a Terrible situation, like a civil war happening on the other side of the planet. You read that in the news, you believe it. And yet it's so detached from your life, it's so removed from what you're going through, that even though you believe it, it doesn't really have an impact on the way you live. It's mere agreement. Those are the types of belief that I usually think of when I think of belief. Blind faith, a gullibility, or a mere agreement, an intellectual assent to something that is true. This is not what Jesus means. When he says, do not fear, only believe, he's using the word that's commonly related to faith. And when I speak about faith, it means at its core, a sense of trust. And trust only happens in a relationship with the person who is trustworthy, But put yourself in in their shoes. Jesus isn't saying to the disciples, I want you to believe in fairies just because I said so. Nor is he saying, hey, here's a list of doctrines that have nothing to do with you. I want you to believe those too. He's saying, you have walked with me for three years. You're, You're my friends. You've heard my promises. You've seen half of them come to pass and there's still another half that are coming to pass. I want you to believe. He's saying, I want you to trust me. In the same way that you would trust your best friend who asked you to do something for him. That's not blind faith. That's not a mere intellectual agreement. That is a relational quality that is moving on you to a point of conviction, an impelling desire to trust somebody that you know is trustworthy. That's what Jesus is calling the people in this room to do. Trust me. She's just sleeping. Sometimes when you want to give up, the voice of the Holy Spirit is reminding us of Jesus' words. Just trust me. I know you want to give up. But I've been here before with people before you, and I got them through it, and I can get you through it too. Trust me. Now, for some of us, it's not just that we want to give up. It's that we've heard God's promises before. And sometimes, for some of us, God's promises sound made up, far-fetched. You know, I I wonder if some of these expected, like I brought up a few minutes ago, kind of half expected, Jesus can heal this girl when she's alive, because I've seen him do that before. But now she's dead. That's a little extra. There's been moments in my life where I'm like... My job, my responsibility is to teach and to know the Bible. And I know the stories. I've read the story about God parting the Red Sea and Jesus raising up Lazarus. I know how this story is going to end. And yet when it comes to my life, those moments of fear and doubt creep up inside me from the years of disappointment that I've experienced. And to be perfectly honest, there's moments in my life where I'm like, God's promises sound too good to be true right now. Do you you ever feel that way? We can get so disappointed that we read God's word and it's hard to take it seriously sometimes. Or we believe it as something that happened thousands of years ago. God did that, he parted the Red Sea so long ago. He raised these people up so long ago, but would he still do it today? Or we might even think he'll do it today to that person or in that church, but can he heal me today? Can he heal me even? Sometimes God's promises sound made up and we see that sense here in the room, in the scene. Verse 39, he went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. Verse 40, they started laughing at him. They started laughing at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Sometimes God's promises sound too good to be true And we want to give up. And even then, Jesus is still calling us to a real sense of belief. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. But I also want you to see what's happening behind the scenes in this room. Have you noticed that Jesus is kind of slimming down the group that's accompanying him this whole time? (laughs) It started with Peter, James, and John. Like he came with a mob. And before he goes into the house, he's like, all, you all, all y'all wait out here. I'm gonna bring Peter, James, and John with me. And he keeps doing that. They say that the, there's a, a group of people wailing and weeping in here. It was common tradition that when somebody died in the first century, especially in a Jewish home, you'd actually hire professional mourners. That's probably what this is. A house full of professional mourners. Grieving was an important part of the Jewish faith. It's a healthy part of the faith. It's something we could use more of today, an ability to lament. And so for them, they actually had professional mourners who were there to assist in crying and wailing. And that's probably who's laughing right now. And Jesus, after shrinking his group down a little bit, shrinks it a little bit more and he tells them to wait outside. It's almost like Jesus is making space for the Father to work through him, and it requires him cleaning up the house a little bit. Now what does this mean for you and I? I I can't help but notice that the only people that Jesus takes into that core place where the healing is gonna happen are the hungriest, and most desperate people. James, Peter, and John, and a mom and dad who just lost their kid. Everybody else has to wait outside. I wanna posit at this moment that sometimes, and perhaps for some of you in this room, watching at home, out in the parking lot, sometimes the source of your fear is from toxic people that have been hanging around for too long. People who are not desperate. People who are laughing. People who are spreading anxiety and doubt and cynicism. Now look, I'm not talking about the sense that we as Christians are supposed to be around people in the world as a light to them. That's great. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your core group. Some of you, You've been drugged down by a toxic group of people who just spend most of your energy laughing, doubting and being cynical. And you're wondering why you're so anxious. And my question is, why do you still have toxic people in your core group? Minister to them, but I think you need a core group, a different core group. Some of you might need to practice that old 90s saying, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He put them all outside. Some of y'all need to put some people outside for a moment so that you can be in the presence of the Lord and be centered by what the Holy Spirit is telling you. And some of you need to replace that vacuum with some hungry, desperate people. I don't mean desperate in the sense that they're crazy. (laughs) I mean desperate in the sense that they want what you want. They want a move of the Holy Spirit in their midst and they're willing to do anything that it takes to get it. And they're not gonna drag you down, they're gonna encourage you, they're gonna challenge you, they're gonna speak the word of the Lord to you. When you say I want this girl to be raised from the dead, they're gonna be cheering you and praying with you. You need people like that. Minister to the others, but your core group, if we were to look at the method of Jesus, he always seemed to shrink it down at the moment when it mattered. To be desperate, hungry, coachable, teachable people. But I digress. Sometimes you want to give up. Sometimes God's promises sound made up. But here's the gospel. Jesus is wanting to come in and say, get up. Verse 41, then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is in Aramaic. This whole book is in Greek, and yet in these key points, like when Jesus is on the cross and he's shouting out to the Father, or when he's raising this girl from the dead, Luke sees fit to capture his original language, Aramaic, perhaps because he wants you to feel the rawness and the intensity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Talitha cum means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, immediately, Mark's favorite word. Mark writes the fastest-paced gospel of all of them. He doesn't include all of those minor details like Matthew and Luke are really stoked about. He just goes from event to event because he wants to get you in a rush, in a sense of urgency, to the end game and he uses more than any other word, about 50 times, this word immediately to exacerbate that sense of urgency. Immediately at the word of Jesus Christ, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old, and they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. I love that this story ends with food, So much of the Gospels end with food. What would Jesus do? I think we should eat more together. Heal people, heal the sick, raise the dead, and eat some food, okay? But listen, the point here is that what is often overwhelming to you and I is to Jesus a temporary condition. This is death. Jesus could heal a girl, but... He probably can't raise the the dead. Send him home. Let's not bother him. To Jesus, death is just an interim condition. It's temporary. He's just passing through. You might be saying, yeah, well, death is, is, uh, that's awesome, but I'm not dead yet, but I am going through something at my job. What does that have to do with anything that I'm dealing with right now, undead? I'm not dead yet. Well, here's what I think it means. I think it means that if Jesus is the king and his kingship is so powerful that even death has to step down and take a knee before the Messiah, if he can handle death, he can handle what you're going through at your job. If he can handle death, he can handle your broken marriage, he can handle your depression. He can handle your dark night of the soul. He can handle your dirty secrets that you're unwilling to tell anybody. If Jesus can handle death, he can handle anything. To Jesus, death is just an interim condition. It's temporary, he's just passing through. Well, add anything you want into that space. Your broken relationship might be heartbreaking to you, yes, but to Jesus, it's just a temporary condition. Your poverty might be frustrating to you, having to decide, do I put food on the table, do I take my kid out for a date, or do, or, or do I, I pay the bills to put the roof over my head? Poverty might be frustrating to you, but to Jesus, it's an interim condition. Your sickness might be debilitating to you, but to Jesus, it's a temporary condition, Your setback might be disappointing to you, but to Jesus, it's an interim condition. Your immaturity might be dragging you down, but to Jesus, it's just an interim condition. Your failures might be disillusioning for you, but to Jesus, it's just an interim condition. Your pain, your weakness, your disappointment might be unnecessary, overwhelming, inconvenient for you. To Jesus, he's just passing through and he's taking you with him. Your terminal diagnosis might be alarming to you. To Jesus, it's just an interim condition. You might be a 12-year-old girl on a deathbed while everyone else is giving up and laughing. But to Jesus, death is just an interim condition. And in your interim condition, while other people are laughing at your faith, laughing at your struggle, Jesus Is working. And in your interim condition, when everyone around you only sees death, Jesus just sees a quick nap. And in your interim condition, when you're tempted to give up, when God's promises sound made up, Jesus says, girl, get up. Woman, get up. Kid, get up, man, you get up, husbands, get up, fathers, mothers, get up, entrepreneurs, get up, teachers, nurses, engineers, cops, paramedics, stay-at-home parents, city workers, get up, and I know you're tired. I know for some of you, you're so tired, it's like you're dead, but in the economy of Jesus, you're just asleep, so in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I say unto you, get up. There's work to be done, praise God. There's work to be done. There's a life for you to live. There's people waiting to love on you. There's people who need to be loved by you. So get up. Your family needs you to get up. Your spouse needs you to get up. Your daughter needs you to get up. Your mother needs you to get up. Your classroom needs you to get up. Your employees, your customers, your neighbor needs you to get up. That stranger you had no idea you were gonna meet today at four o'clock on State Street needs you to get up. Your friends need you to get up. Your church needs you to get up. I need you to get up. We need you to get up and live again. I'm gonna ask Robert to come up here and lead us in song, and as we do, I want you to consider that these last three stories, even though they all take on different angles, are all essentially the same. Unclean people trying to touch or be touched by a clean Jesus. And had this been any other rabbi, any other academic, any politician, any world leader, it would have probably ended up similarly. For a rabbi in the first century, it would have been a sense of disgust and repulsion. This dirty person is touching a clean me and now they're robbing me of my cleanliness. But Jesus is not like the other rabbis, is he? With Jesus, the kingdom of God switches that way of thinking on its head. And everyone who touches Jesus find that his cleanliness is transferred to them. His righteousness is transferred to them. His healing is transferred to them. His power is transferred to them. His love is transferred to them. And right now, 2,000 years after one of the greatest stories ever told, Jesus gathers his people From all walks of life and all different situations by the power of the Holy Spirit to touch a broken person once more. Maybe that's you. And if that is, and you're asking, how can I respond to the healer's touch? There's probably a number of ways. Well, I want to give you three or four standard practices that we usually do on a Sunday together. They're not novel or crazy or outlandish or complex it's how we encounter the healing power of jesus the first is through prayer teams you know what i love about this story is unlike the woman with the issue of blood or the the demonized man this girl couldn't pray for herself she was dead she couldn't touch jesus and she needed a jairus to speak on her behalf Crystal, can you wave at us over there? That's Crystal. That's our J. Iris today. Karen Amling is outside with Mark. That's our J. Iris today. For some of you, you're so weak and tired, you don't even know what to pray. That's okay. But the J Iris is in our church, pray for you. For others, it's communion. We have communion stations here at the front and also outside. This is the way that Christians, in a very sacred and special way, the way that Jesus prescribed to us. Lay all of our stuff out before Him and just come to Him and remember that we too are like that 12 year old girl. We were dead. And it's Jesus who provides life. We respond in song through surrender and worship. And sometimes when our hearts and our minds can't catch up because they're overladen with anxiety, sometimes the body helps the mind and the heart catch up. And the way we do that is by singing songs like, Oh, the joy I found. Surrendering my crown at the feet of Jesus. You can have it all. Lastly, we have spaces everywhere. You can stay in your chair. You can stand. You can kneel in front of your seat. You can hit the carpets if you want some solitude. You can go off to the side. No, no, it doesn't matter. Whatever helps you get into the presence of the Lord who heals and who thousands of years later continues to heal for his glory and for your joy, amen? Let's get before him today.